Just want to say thank you for singing that last song over me. Tell you what, I don't know if I got through a line of that song. Such, such a great hymn for us to sing together. And may that be our prayer this morning, every morning, that Christ would be all, that our pride would be brought low, and that we would seek His will, His glory in everything we do. I'm so thankful for it. Well, as we continue to worship this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, we're going to be in verses 34 through 38 this morning. And as you turn there, let us turn to the Lord one final time as we give this time over to the Lord and ask Him to do a work in our hearts that only His Spirit can do as He applies the proclaimed Word to our own spirits and souls and even to our wills and our actions. And so let's, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful not only that Christ be all, but that Christ is all. That even as we read in Philippians chapter 2, that every knee will bow. That on that golden shore, we will run to meet the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, what a glorious thing that is. What a privilege it is for us to give ourselves to Christ. To trust in Him and our service as we seek to love those around us. Which is sourced in our love above all for God Himself. Father, would You make us love You more? Would You create in us a heart that desires and delights to be in Your presence? Father, each one of us come this morning with sins that try to keep us in the dark. That seek to keep us out of the presence of the Lord. So Father, we confess those sins before You this morning. And we lay them upon the altar. We give them to Christ so that His blood might wash us clean in order that we might come boldly before the throne of grace. What a marvelous promise that is. That we can enter in to the presence of the One who created all things and who sustains all things by the Word of His power. Father, would You do a work among us this morning as we give attention to Your Word, may You give us an extra measure of it in order that we might hear Your Word with ears that can hear and see Your Word with eyes that can see. We're so thankful for it, and we pray this in Your name. Well, we have been splitting our time on Sunday mornings between the first epistle from the Apostle John as well as our vision and commitments. Now, usually we pick up our vision and commitments on a communion Sunday. And you've probably noticed that this Sunday is not a communion Sunday. But since we were away last week, I didn't want to uh, create so much distance and space between this sermon series. And so I felt like it was good for us to consider this morning uh, the, the idea of 
loving God or being committed to love God more. As we consider this topic this morning from Matthew chapter 22, we see that as somewhat of a review, the last time we were in this passage, that God commands us to love Him because it is good for us to love Him. That God's commands are always good. That God is always desiring to lead us into fellowship with Him to fellowship with His people, because that's where our flourishing is found. And so we see in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, that God commands us to worship Him, to love Him, because it is good. But also, we learned and saw that it's difficult to love the Lord our God. And it's difficult because we still have, even as we saw in 1 John Chapter 1, last time we were in 1 John, we still have a sin nature. And that sin nature is constantly seeking to draw us back into what we once were in the old man. Instead of fully embracing who we are now in Jesus Christ. And so God commands us to love Him in this passage in order that... He might pull us and keep pulling us away from our connection to that old sinful man. And so we have seen in Matthew 22 why we should love God, why love for God should be our first priority, but what does loving God look like exactly? This morning, I'd like to explore and answer that question as we look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 38, and we see not only why we should love God, but what loving God looks like. So I trust that you have in your uh, open before you Matthew chapter 22. Let us read verses 34 through 38. It says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandments. What we see in our text this morning are two things in particular, two things in particular that help us understand what it looks like to love God. If you're following along in the bulletin insert, the first fill-in for you there is that loving God is a commitment to His or God's whole being. As we love God, we are called by the Scripture to love God for who He is, not for who we desire Him to be. And the way that we understand who God is, is because God has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. And so God is calling us here to give ourselves wholly to the whole being of God. And we see this here in the language of verse 37. 
Notice verse 37 with me. It says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The word that Jesus uses here for our love to God is the Greek word agape. I imagine it's a term that you are familiar with. It's a very important word when we think about how God has called us to love one another in light of how God has loved us. This word agape is the word that is used most often for our love to one another as well as God's love for us. So then what is agape love exactly? And how then should it inform the way that we love God? What is agape love? Well, we've run into this word before as we studied through Colossians chapter 3. Now, I know that Colossians chapter 3 was a very long time ago. And so in order for us to be refreshed in our memories, why don't you turn over there with me, Colossians chapter 3, as we see Paul use and define this very word agape for us in his letter to the saints at Colossae. We see the Spirit define for us this love through the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 and 14 says this, But put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love. The word there is agape. And he seeks to define the essential nature of love in the following statements. Put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, I actually like the way that the King James and the New King James translates verse 14 because I think it sticks closer to the original language than the ESV. Let me read it for you in the New King James Version. Colossians 3 verse 14 says this, But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Paul here, through the Spirit, calls agape love the bond of perfection. Which means that it's a love that is committed to spiritual maturity. This idea of love through the epistles is that each one of us are committed to and responsible for the spiritual progress and well-being of those whom God has called us into covenant fellowship with. This is the bond of perfection. It is a bond which, which ultimate goal is to see us progress in our love for and growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so if we were to define agape love from Colossians 3.14, as well as many other passages, we would define it like this, and you can find the definition in your in, uh, bulletin insert. Agape love is the sacrificial and uncompromising commitment to the spiritual well-being of another that compels us to act on their behalf for their flourishing. This love is seen throughout the epistles as the Spirit calls each one of us to love one another. But this love is also seen in the history of humanity recorded for us in the Bible as God extends this very love to His people. You see, throughout history, brothers and sisters, God has been eternally committed to the spiritual flourishing of His people. He has been sacrificially and uncompromisingly committed to our spiritual well-being. God defines this love Himself in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. Where God defines and displays His love for His people in these verses. Notice verse 6 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath. He's committed covenantally. He is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Notice that the author here, Moses, sets right next to each other the love of God and the covenant keeping and faithfulness of God. This is how God loves His people. This is how God loves the world. God is committed to the spiritual flourishing of the world. And He has moved towards the world in order to secure their greatest good through the person of Jesus, God, Jesus Christ. God has gone to extraordinary lengths to secure our spiritual flourishing because He promised to do so all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So much so that God even sent His one and only Son to be the Savior of the world. 
John chapter 3, verse 16. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. So then, what is agape love? In short, agape love is to be uncompromisingly and sacrificially committed to the ultimate well-being of another that compels us, moves us to act on their behalf for their flourishing. But wait a second. What Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 22 is that we are to love God with agape love. That we are to love God with all our hearts, all our souls, and all our minds with this same kind of love. Notice it with me again. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. And he said to him, you shall love agape. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. So then here's the question. Can we use the same kind of language that we use of our love for others and God's love for us when we think about our love to God? Can we say that in exercising agape love towards God that we are sacrificially and uncompromisingly, uncompromisingly committed to the well-being of God? Well, the answer is no, not necessarily. Nothing that we do, even in our service for the king, makes up for any lack in God. God, in loving us, does for us what we could never do for ourselves. But we can't say this about our actions towards God. God does not need us this morning. Our actions do nothing to advance the spiritual well-being of God, for God is the well of all spiritual good. This means, then, that we must alter our definition of agape love towards God a bit, while still maintaining the same spirit of our definition that we derived from Colossians chapter 3, Deuteronomy 7 and John chapter 3. You see, since God is the source of all good, and since we can't add anything to the actions of God, then our agape love towards God must be defined like this. Notice it again with me in your bulletin insert. Agape love towards God is an uncompromising and sacrificial commitment to God as the ultimate source of our spiritual well-being that compels us to move towards God for our flourishing. I trust I said that slow enough so that you could fill in all those blanks, yes? Does anybody need me to repeat that definition? 
Gaudi shaking her head. Please, would you please repeat that definition, please. Here it is again, nice and slow. Agape love towards God is an uncompromising and sacrificial commitment to God as the ultimate source of our spiritual well-being that compels us to move towards God for our flourishing. And you see how love towards God flips the definition of doing something for others to doing something for ourselves that ultimately overflows in doing things for others. You see, we love God first, which then causes us to love others better. When we love God, we are the benefactors. God is not. And this is why our love for God must be uncompromising and sacrificial, which is what we see in Matthew chapter 22. Uncompromising because there is nothing outside of God that will ultimately promote our flourishing. Sacrificial because we must lay down lesser pursuits every day. Every moment in order that we might embark on the greater pursuit of Jesus Christ. When we love God, we commit ourselves to know and embrace and submit to God as more excellent than anything in this world. And therefore, as our only hope for a full experience of life. And when we are fully convinced that God is our greatest delight, then we will move towards God in faith-filled dependence. But Matthew chapter 22 isn't the only place where we see this kind of devotion and sacrifice. We also see it in Psalm 86. Turn with me, if you would, over to Psalm 86 this morning. Psalm 86, we were going, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. We're going to divide it up into parts a bit this morning, and I'm going to make a few comments in between each part, just so we can kind of see the full sense of what is happening here in Psalm 86. Beginning in verse 1, I want you to hear the desperation and the commitment of the psalmist to God as his only source for ultimate good. Notice it. Verse 1, Incline your ear, O God, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Sounds similar even to the song that we sang this morning in our worship. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servants. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up 
my soul. We see here in verses 1 through 4 that the psalmist is declaring that his ultimate dedication and devotion is to God. That he is committed to God as his ultimate satisfaction. There is nothing else in the world that gladdens the soul of the psalmist than God does. And beloved, let me reinforce this for us this morning and assure you that there is nothing in this world that will gladden your soul like the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we ought to be committed to loving Christ above all. But what we notice in Psalm 86, especially in verse 5 and following, is how the psalmist loves God. And he loves Him on the basis of an accurate understanding of who God is. And that's important. Notice it in verses 5 through 8. He says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. You see, the psalmist is committed to God because he understands exactly who God is because God has revealed Himself through His words and His works. And so He doesn't love some figment of His imagination. He loves the real and true God who is revealed in the Bible. Finally, we see that this commitment moves to declaring God's goodness to all the nations. Notice in verse 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. In this passage, we see that the love of the psalmist is expressed in several ways. First, in understanding the person and works of God as they are revealed in Scripture. But secondly, not only knowing it, but embracing it and delighting in it. Giving his soul to the gladness that he finds in God. And then finally, by declaring that goodness to all around him through praise. What the psalmist is calling us to and what Jesus is calling us to in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 38 is to give our whole being to the whole being of God. In loving God, we declare, not only with our words, but also with our actions, that God is supremely good. 
because we know Him as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. And we delight in who God is. And therefore, we move in God's direction as our greatest good. What we see here is that our whole being is given to love God. Secondly, if you're following along in your insert, not only does the love of God look like being committed to the whole being of God, it also looks like committing our whole being to God. Notice it again in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 verse 37 says, And He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your minds. Now in order to help us understand what giving our whole selves to God in love looks like, Jesus divides the self here into three particular areas. We are to give our hearts. We are to give our souls. We are to give our minds in loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this threefold distinction helps us to see how each component of our human nature contributes to our love and commitment to God. And so what I want to do with the remaining time that we have this morning is just to briefly look at each element that Jesus highlights here and then see how each of these work to fully form our love for God. So first, Jesus says, love God with all your heart. What is the heart? I think one of the best definitions that I've ever heard of the heart comes from Paul Tripp. Tripp says that the heart is the causal core of our personhood. The causal core of our personhood. Which means that the heart is what moves us in any given direction towards that which we love and desire. Brothers and sisters, our hearts ultimately determine our actions. We're familiar with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, where He says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For what, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. This is why the author of Proverbs said in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The desires of our hearts is what moves us. It compels us, it motivates us toward a certain goal or pursuits. Beloved, we must understand that none of our actions are done in a vacuum. The choices that we make are always determined by our hearts, which is always determined by what we love most. And when God 
is the greatest object of our affection, then our actions will move towards God. To love God is to be committed to moving in the right direction of God. But then Jesus moves from our hearts to our souls. Notice it, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So then what is the soul? The soul is that which animates the body. It is the life-giving force of our nature. The soul is the place where we experience spiritual hunger. It's the place where we experience joy and delight and even bitterness. We could say that it is in our souls that we actually feel desires and emotions. Psalm 143 verse 6 says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Selah. We saw it in Psalm 86 verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servants for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. And so loving God then is to commit our longings and emotions to God. As we love God, we must be committed to feel right feelings about God. It's okay, beloved, to be moved in your emotions. That's a good thing. When we sing, all I have is Christ. Or when we sing, whatever that song was that I can't remember at this moment, because my mind's a little preoccupied, Christ be all, there it is. Whenever we sing Christ be all, it's good for your emotions to be moved. And for you to cry out, Lord, feed and gladden my soul. But Jesus goes on finally to say, love God with all your mind. See, our mind is the place where we conceive right thoughts about God. It's where we take hold of the reality of who God is. Beloved, in order, hear this, in order for God to be rightly cherished, He must be rightly understood. And the Word of God reveals to us the nature, the character, and the works of Almighty God. And therefore, we should give ourselves to the proper understanding of who God is as He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. Therefore, loving God is to commit our thoughts to God, it is to commit our emotions to God, and it is to commit our actions and motiv motivations to God. Loving God is to commit our whole person to pursue God as our greatest good. Let me try to simplify this this morning by giving you an earthly illustration. Take, for example, a piece of chocolate cake or vanilla cake, if that's your fancy. Many of us love a good piece of chocolate cake. 
We were driving home the other day from Ohio. We were trying to pass the time, and so we were asking these get-to-know-you questions. And one of the questions had to deal with our favorite desserts. So it came to me, and I said, well, my favorite dessert was my dad's chocolate mayonnaise cake. Is that a thing out here? Show of hands. How many of you ever heard? Oh, man, more in the crowd than I thought. So you understand. Well, Piper was actually quite mortified at the thought of putting mayonnaise on a chocolate cake. And so I had to reassure her, Colby, that it's not putting mayonnaise on the cake. It's putting mayonnaise in the cake. And therefore, the mix makes the cake super moist and fluffy. The fluffiest cake I've ever had. Anyways, I love chocolate cake. Now, what do I mean when I make that statement? It means that I know something about chocolate cake. I know that chocolate cake is super moist and very chocolatey and sweet and pleasant to my taste buds. And I believe it so much that when I think about chocolate cake, it doesn't just sit in my mind, it moves to my emotions, even to my salivary glands. Which causes me then for my mouth to water as I think about chocolate cake. But beloved, it doesn't only sit in my mind or even in my heart, it compels me to do something about it. Possibly even today, after the service, I will go and pick up a fresh can of Hellman's mayonnaise and all of the ingredients that are needed to bake a chocolate cake, and I will go home and enjoy chocolate cake. Why? Because my love for cake not only affects my mind, it not only affects my emotions, but it moves me to secure the very thing that I love and enjoy. And beloved, if we do this for chocolate cake, how much more desirable is the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And loving God, we declare not only with our words, but also with our actions that God is supremely good. Why? Because we know something about God as He has revealed Himself in the Scripture. But not only that, beloved, we delight, we are moved in our emotions and our feelings when we think those right thoughts about God. And this ought to move us into God's presence. We ought then to act on our love and emotions and desire for God. And we should see this love for God in our everyday actions. In the process of sanctification, the Word of God is presented to our minds. And as our minds process what is being presented to us, it ought to call our souls and our hearts to embrace and move towards God as our greatest good. Beloved, 
This is why. This is why we are so intentional about what we do on Sunday mornings. It is why I am so careful with my study and presentation of God to you on Sunday. You see, beloved, our task on Sunday morning is to present to you the people of God, the object of your love and your worship. And we have to be confident that the object that we present to you is truly the God of the Bible. To present anything less is to endorse idolatry. Our desire in everything we do is to present the proper person of God so that you might see God as most glorious and in so doing, give your minds and your hearts and your souls to Him. That you would step out in faith and take action to secure that delight in God. Whether that be through singing or reading or listening or thinking or fellowshipping or loving or forgiving or even sacrificing your comforts and conveniences to experience more of God. This is our desire in the first commitment to love God more. That we would delight in God so much that any obstacle to enjoying Him would never, may I say, never be insurmountable. That we would climb the highest mountain if God be there. Or descend into the lowest pit if God be there. Or endure the greatest trial if God be there. Or love the hardest sinner if God be there. Or go to the most remote of villages if God be there. Or visit the darkest cavern if God be there. Or blaze the most gnarly trail if God be there. Or befriend the greatest of enemies if God be there. Or forgive the most hurtful offense if God be there. Beloved, our desire is that God would be our greatest delight. And everything that we do, we do in order that we might love God. Father, we are so thankful for your grace towards us. What a glorious thing it is for us to be able to gather to worship you. Father, you are absolutely worthy of our worship. As we think about this text, as we think about what it calls us to be and to do, Lord, may you through your Spirit continue to work that love for God in us. Even as the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the work of Christ, may you continue to develop it in each one of us. And Father, may we be willing to accept the circumstances 
that you bring into our lives in order to strip us of our love of this world and to affect within us a greater love for you. Father, would you do this work in our hearts as only you can do it? Would you give us grace and wisdom as we seek to walk in this world and we seek to love you more? So thankful for your grace towards us. We pray this way. Stand with us now for our song of response. As we sing, All I Have is Christ. The text for this hymn is a passage you just heard a few minutes ago, but it won't hurt to hear it again. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind.